0: Good morning. Our first reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, starting with verse 6. It's on page 515 of the Pew Bibles. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself, he kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it, he makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire, over it he prepares his meal, he roasts his meat and eats his fill, he also warms himself and says, ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol, he bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my God. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie?
1: The next reading is from Matthew 624. It's on page 685. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The next readings from Colossians 3 uh, 5 to 6, and it's page 834 on your Bible in your Pew Bibles. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Sorry, that was one verse too many.
2: He says we're not generous at church? <laughs> uh, we're going to uh, have the great privilege of reflecting more on the Word of God. Let me uh, again say, as we finish our final week of uh, looking at money, uh, you'd be better off having a pad next to you rather than the Bible open. Not because I don't like you looking at the Bible, it's just I'm going to mention so many bits from so many different areas, you'll want to jot them down and look them up later on. Uh, we began a conversation about money a few weeks ago. Uh, we took aspects of God's character... Uh, to see how it impacts our understanding and our use of the liquid power that is cash, that is money. Uh, we looked at how the power of God shapes what money is and what it's for. Uh, we looked at how the love of God shapes how we make our financial decisions. And as we finish the series this week, I want us to understand our final, how, why it is, sorry, I want us to understand why it is that our financial decisions are so important. Why, is it so, why does it matter so much? In a moment we're going to see a clip, but before we do, let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, we thank you that you provide all we need and not least you provide spiritually by your word. Uh, Father, we ask that you would pour your spirit into our hearts this morning, that we would love the things you teach us. Uh, guard us from the things that will endanger us and reshape us to live lives to your glory and honour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why do your financial decisions matter? Let's have a look at this clip and maybe someone might want to flick the lights off at the back. Or I will.
3: The pocketbook says, my money is the key to happiness. It's the key to power. It's the key to peace. It's the key to success, it's the key to capitalism, it's the key to producing purpose, and it's the key to finding love. That's my money. I wonder, do you know it? My money is a supreme money. No debased deceiver can debunk its buying power. It puts bread on the table, it makes me feel stable it's the core of consumerism it is beyond criticism it has no euphemisms do you know it it wakes me up in the morning and it keeps me up at night it is the reward that i hoard it dictates my day it divides my attention it's the big benjamin it's the cherished cheese it's the green gravy it's the lean lettuce I wonder if you know it today. It has motivated every great person in all of mankind. It is incorruptible. It is indestructible. It is the translation of technology. It is the prescription of the powerful. It makes my heart appeased. And it's the only thing that puts me at ease. Do I want more of it? Yes, please. I wish I could describe it to you, yes. It's uncomfortable. It's uncontrollable. You can't get it out of your mind. You can't get it without demand. Without it, you can't get by. You can't buy without it. The world can't function without it, and it lasts for all eternity. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's my money. Go ahead and clap your hands if you need to, cause that's my money. That's my money.
2: Is that the money you know? I'd love to preach like that, wouldn't you? But I think you'd see through the accent. But is that the money you know? Uh, You know, putting bread on the table, making you feel stable. You know, is is that the money you know, that it's beyond criticism, that it divides your attention? Is it the money you know? Is it the only thing that makes you at ease? So let's be honest. Do we really believe... Jesus when he says that you can't serve both God and money or was Jesus getting a little bit too carried away did you not understand how if you're quite clever you can actually serve money carefully underneath serving God didn't he get that See, money and its pursuit have a stranglehold on our society uh, you now I think we've moved away over the decades from that kind of crass greed is good principle I think we all go oh that's a little you know low brow." Yeah, you know, we, we hold in contempt that kind of self-interest. And, and so when we hear that in 2008 Goldman Sachs set aside $11.4 billion US, slightly more than the firm's $10 billion US government grant, to cover their bonus payments for its 443 senior partners, you know, we're disgusted, quite frankly, that, that kind of obvious greed. We, we're not enticed by that. Yeah, and yet you look at the current election campaign and the one-upmanship of bonuses that keep being on offer and the giveaways both parties want to dangle. And it seems, well, we don't mind a little bit of self-interest, do we? Even in Christian circles, uh, the mantra, shop till you drop, seems quite acceptable, as a hobby at least. In the same way that, uh, I suppose, urban middle classes look down at the McMansions of the Hills District, uh, it's really... Really easy to despise obvious greed while secretly just kind of cultivating our subtle love of money. So Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. Why, I asked, is our approach to money so important? Well, because handling cash is actually playing with your eternity. Luther, he wrote, baptised or not, no greedy belly can be a Christian. But he has certainly lost Christ and become a heathen. The two are intolerable to each other. Being greedy or anxious and being a believer. The one has to eliminate the other. So what, why do your financial decisions matter so much? Because money is dangerous. It's dangerous. At least the power our hearts give to money is a few weeks ago I said that money's actually good and it's still true, I still believe that, you can go and re-listen to the sermon online, um, I'm not backing away from that but, but with our hearts money is a dangerous thing. Because we need to understand an aspect of God's character uh, and it would be remiss of me not to point it out as we look at money, that our God is a jealous God. So the Bible is really clear. There is only one God. Uh, Liz read it for us in Isaiah 44 from verse 6. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And as the chapter rolls on, I know that we don't feel very comfortable laughing when the Bible reading's happening, but it's actually one of those chapters where it's okay to laugh when the Bible reading's happening. Um, As it rolls on, God is making fun of the stupidity of idolatry. Like, what kind of idiot would chop down a tree and think that, you know, half of it they can burn for fuel and the other half, oh, you know, that's my God, I'll serve it. And yet the stupidity of us turning bits of creation and treating them though uh, they're our creator is so common. But God has no true rival. That's what Isaiah 44 is all about. Yet the fact that we create rivals for him arouses his right jealousy. God is jealous. Uh, Exodus 34 verse 14, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And he is jealous for his people. Uh, Zechariah one verse fourteen. This is what the Lord Almighty says: I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, uh, the places of His people. Um, James four five talks about how He yearns for us, His people, with uh, unto jealousy. And God is jealous as well for His reputation. Uh, Ezekiel thirty nine: I will be zealous uh, or jealous for My holy name. And God acts on His jealousy. Deuteronomy six. The Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. God is a jealous God. And of course, we need to see this is actually not only right, but it's actually a good thing. God isn't jealous in that kind of petty, green-eyed, monstered kind of way where he's just about being envious and getting stuff for himself. God's jealousy uh, is another person-centred jealousy. It's, it's a pure and natural desire to protect what is good and right, just like in a marriage. Uh, Calvin put it this way, as the purer and chaster a husband is, the more grievously he is offended when he sees his wife inclining to a rival. And so the Lord, who, he has, betrothed, uh, who has betrothed himself to us in truth, declares that he burns with the hottest jealousy when the worship of his deity is transferred to another. See, God, his jealousy flows not from hate, but love. It flows from other person-centeredness, not self-interest. The immoral husband is not the one who jealously protects his marriage. The immoral husband is the one who doesn't care about his marriage. And God has poured himself out for his people. He's entered into a contract, a covenant with them to make them his treasure, possession. He has given up his son to secure and make them his, his bride, his people. And for God to be anything less than jealous would be immoral. It is for our good that God yearns for us jealousy, jealously. What's it got to do with our money? <laughs> your financial decisions matter because they've got this dangerous power to provoke that jealousy in God for greed is not a trivial sin now all sin is sin in one sense yeah you know, in the sense that you know all sin doesn't matter what you do makes you impure impure makes you unfit for God's kingdom it, it leaves you out of uh, perfection because he's a holy god but at the same time some sin is more wor- is worse than other sins it's more damaging uh, you might remember there was a time Jesus rebukes uh, the Pharisees because what do they do? They keep the trivial bits of law but ignore the greater parts of the law. So they, they sit around, they tithe their herbs, they sit down and count a tenth off their time and things like that and they hand that in. You know, they're doing this trivial stuff uh, and they ignore the vital sections like justice for the poor. <laughs> yeah, and Jesus says, no, no, your problem is you don't keep it all. And in doing that, he says you've got to keep both the small and the greater parts. He recognises, yes, sin is sin, but some sin is worse than other sin, is more heinous than other sin, and greed is a heinous kind of sin. In, in God's view, to engage in greed, to give in to greed, is in the same basket as bowing down to an idol. It's the same as worshipping a false god like Allah or joining him with a myriad of, of Hindu gods on offer. Colossians 3 verse 5, greed is idolatry. Ephesians 5 verse 5, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Martin Luther helpfully put the connection this way. He said, a God is the term for that which we look to for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. And therefore to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in, the, in that one with your whole heart. As I've often said, it is the trust and faith of the heart alone that makes both God an idol. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that is really your God. See, greed is idolatry because what money can do is invite us to misplace our trust Money has this power to, to harness our hearts. Why do your financial decisions matter so much? Because they have the power to lead you astray and come under the jealous wrath of God. And because it's so important to be remiss of me not for us to spend a week thinking about this. There are three things we must never do with our money. one, We mustn't trust our money. It's so instinctive, and yet that's the heart of idolatry. Job, you may be familiar with Job, he's famous for suffering, hardship, and difficulty. Uh, But prior to that, he was actually a wealthy man. Uh, But this was uh, his experience and understanding of money in Job 31. If I had put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I had rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained. If I had regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these also would be sins to be judged for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. See, Job understood that connection between wealth and idolatry. And although Job was really rich, he never made wealth his idol, his obsession. God remained the sole object of his trust and worship. For Job understood the spiritual suicide of trusting our money. Not only is it it, it suicide spiritually, but it's also just a stupid investment the Bible points out. Proverbs 11.28, whoever has riches will fall. Sorry, whoever trusts, not has, whoever trusts riches will fall. But the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. And Proverbs 18 verse 10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine in an unscalable wall. They imagine it an unscalable wall. They think it will keep them safe. They trust in their wealth. And yet, as 1 Timothy 6 says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Money is an unworthy source of security. It can't really achieve what we want. If you know the song Satisfied Mind, it puts it helpfully. Money can't buy back your youth when you're old, a friend when you're lonely, or peace to your soul. That's what Isaiah is mocking, the inability of idols, any idol, to achieve what you really want. What we really value, money can't get. And even when it does provide it, it's not stable. Um, Global financial crises happen, don't they? And when they happen, investments just disappear. You know, no bank account can stop floods or hurricanes. Diseases like cancer don't stop because they see your financial state. You know, of course, um, don't get me wrong, there's there's lots of benefits and protection in having the liquid power of wealth. We spoke about that a few weeks ago. But the error we fall into is thinking it makes us invincible. We mustn't provoke God's jealousy. By depending on our wealth for our security. What do we do instead? How do we make sure we're not doing it? We spend generously. That's how we demonstrate we don't trust wealth, we give it away. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul uses this counterintuitive logic. Um, he encourages people, give, give generously, give cheerfully, give willingly, knowing because knowing that God will, in verse 11, enrich you in every way for your generosity. God will look after you, he will provide for you, not that you will build an unscalable wall of protection by your wealth, but so that you can give more of it away. That's that kind of weird logic that seems so counterintuitive and yet it's natural logic when you understand a jealous God who loves and cares for his people. It's the logic of Matthew 6, isn't it, where Jesus challenges people, seek first the kingdom and righteousness, don't worry about your money, trust that God will provide. See, so if we've really turned our backs on trusting money, it's going to be seen in our generosity. Uh, it's where the, the percentage challenge fits. Uh, you may have heard the question or the variance on it. If you faced today a 20% cut in your salary, what would you give up? Now, you've got the thing in your mind. The follow-up question is, well, why not voluntarily give it up, knowing God's provision for the generous uh, for, for the generous people? Now, of course, the the percentage changes depending on, you know, who the preacher is or which book you're reading and things like that, but the question remains the same. The point is still sharp. The generosity we have demonstrates we don't trust our wealth. Around a century ago, a guy called uh, Sir William Hartley, he understood this principle. Uh, He was a a philanthropist and a great businessman. Uh, He had this proportionate giving system. So as his salary increased, so did not just... Uh, he 's giving, but the percentage he gave away increased. Uh, he was known for as an employer, he would regularly, voluntarily increase workers wages, uh, he practiced profit sharing, um, he provided low cost, high quality housing and free medical for his workers. Uh, and he said this: "Nothing raises money to a higher plane and a higher interest than systematic giving. I sit on my money." I don't let it sit on me. To distribute my money is harder and more anxious a task than making it. That is, he thought more deeply about where and how to make the most of what he gave away than he thought about how to get it. There's a guy who understood the generous provision of God and his trust was not in his wealth. And he demonstrated it because he saw its dangers and gave it away. We mustn't trust money, but secondly, we mustn't serve money. Luke 16. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. By implication, you can serve money and you can serve God, but if you're watching in the kids' talk, you can't serve them both together. You can't do them simultaneously. Francis Bacon put it, If money be not thy servant, it will be thy master. The covetous man cannot so properly be said to possess wealth as that may be said to possess him. It's what Andrew asked us at the start, does do we have stuff or does stuff have us? Why is it that um, so many intelligent and gifted people uh, work to the degree that What they say really matters. You know, relationships and family and all that. Um, They work to such a point that their relationships suffer. Why is it that there are so many intelligent people and gifted and talented people who have multiple degrees and they seem to fall into that trap? In in some way, our culture has become indentured servants of money. Uh, In Clive Hamilton's book, Affluenza, where he uses a helpful, and the Bible uses it sometimes well, helpful illustration that uh, the love of money is like a disease. Um, not quite as powerful as saying it's an idol, but it's still powerful. Anyway, he mentions the American Express Platinum card, which comes with a promise. Here's the promise. For the times when you need assistance with life's little demands, Platinum Concierge is there for you. Times a birthday is mentioned to you a moment before it is belated. Or perhaps your anniversary is just around the corner. Simply call your concierge to organise a speedy bouquet and a reservation at the finest restaurant. Essentially, um, this ad is a perk for people who neglect their families. You know, it goes on to promise that it gives you time to do the things that matter most. Uh, presumably, that means making lots more money rather than returning love to the people who love you. Because uh, otherwise, you'd remember the anniversary and you'd organise yourself the bouquet of flowers. Or in Brian Rosner's um, excellent book, Beyond Greed, there's copies of it at the back of the uh, book store at the back. Grab a copy later on. You need to buy it. Um, He shares a story of of the man who is there at counselling because his family is falling apart. Uh, He's working 15 hours a day, seven days a week, always on call, Uh, when, you know, not surprisingly, the insight of the counsellor is perhaps it's your work. Uh, Why don't you walk away? And he says, I tried that last year and they just put up my pay by 25%. How do you walk away from that? We've got to be honest with ourselves. If we neglect those we are called to love, our families, our church families, even our enemies, (laughs) uh, because we are so busy, is it because we're so busy serving man, serving our money? We mustn't provoke God's jealousy by misplaced service. We need to put up guards against it. You know, let me suggest one, have an honest conversation with someone else, you know, here at church, it'd be great, about why you've made the decisions you have about letting parts of your life slide because of your work commitments. Is it because you're actually serving money? May not be, but you need to have that conversation. Or put another guard up, you know, make sure that you commit uh, part of your week in serving people, uh, do it pro bono. You know, maybe it's a church commitment. You know, uh, putting in the preparation to lead a Connect group, or serving music, or be involved in playtime ministry, or, or, or maybe it's a, a community service, using your gifts. Like you know, I know lawyers who who do the you know extra work on the side pro bono for people in need, or, or, or maybe it's family related, like you know, coaching your child's sporting team. I don't have an exact verse for this, but I suspect that if you commit regularly in your week to doing service guaranteed for others that you get no money for, it'll be a really helpful way of preventing your service arousing the jealousy of God. Third thing you must never do. You mustn't trust it, you mustn't serve it, and you mustn't love your money. Don't be seduced by the power that money brings you. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Yeah, money itself is not the problem, is it? You know, if you look at this, this is excellent craftsmanship. It's quite hard to copy. Uh, you know, this is, this is great. It's good plastic. It's, it's well, you know, this is good stuff, but that's not why we, we love it. You know, the, the problem is, is not the money. It's rather we're devoted to what it can achieve. Uh, and it's dangerous. You know, Jesus taught Matthew six no one can serve those two masters. You'll hate one or you'll love the other, you'll be devoted to one, you'll despise the other. You can't serve God and money. And yet money has that power, doesn't it? Not not the, the look of money, but what it can do. It can grip your thoughts and your passions and your devotions. You know, you stay up at night wondering about it. You devote hours to being concerned for it. And yet Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from the love of money and instead be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's really easy to fall in love with money. Normally we drive a Tarago. It's a gold Tarago, but it's still a Tarago. On occasion, we've borrowed our friends' slightly more stylish cars, if you can believe there's more stylish, sporty cars out there than the Tarago. Uh, and I tell you, other drivers look at you differently. And it's a nicer look when you're not in a Tarago. It's a trivial example, but you know, that's the seductive power of money, isn't it? You know, it isn't that we like shiny bits of metal or plastic in our wallets What we love is the pleasures money can make normal for us. What we love is the sacrifices that we don't have to make. What we love is the esteem that it guarantees from other people and the good looks that we get when they notice that we're wearing quite a nice shirt. Yeah, money is eminently lovable. And we mustn't provoke God's jealousy by distorted love. Instead, what do we do? We we seek contentment or in other ways seek moderation to demonstrate that you love God. For people who love excellence, it's a strange thing to seek after, but seek moderation. That's the principle of Proverbs 30. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I might have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I might become poor and I'll steal and I'll dishonor the name of my God. In other words, it's better to be denied wealth and have God than to have wealth and deny God. You know, that, that principle of moderation, of just being satisfied with, daily, with, with, with the provisions for your daily needs. That's what God spent 40 years trying to teach his people in the wilderness. They wandered around in the desert and he would feed the manna from heaven, bread from heaven each day. Why? That they might learn to just be content with what he provides. Because he knew that when they came into the promised land, the land that would flow with milk and honey, the land of wealth and abundance, what would the greatest threat they faced was not the enemy nations but the comfort of life there and that they would stop being content with daily bread and seek after more and forget God and that's exactly what they did. Seek moderation. Protect your hearts from false love. Why does your approach to money matter? Because there's only one God and he is jealous and money wants your service, money wants your trust, money wants your love but only he is worthy of those things. So I want to leave you with another clip, a clip to remind you of our king and why it is that he is worthy of our love, trust and service alone. Let's have a look.